Hi, my name is Nick Baudois, and I'm on a quest, yes, a quest, to discover what motivates, drives, and invigorates practitioners in the field of data science. More importantly, I'd like to take the time to unpack the term data analytics and data science. We hear these terms used interchangeably in the market and seldom sit down to ask what is meant by this nascent field with historical roots in the fields of statistics, mathematics, programming, business, design thinking, data visualization, and various domain expertise. Throughout this podcast, we'll look at the core foundations, separate the important elements from the hype, including the must-haves and the like-to-haves of the data science toolkit. We will ask the movers and shakers of the data science world about their own career trajectory. How did they get to where they are now? How do they find answers and methods to problems that are new to them? And what makes them excited to continue in this field? My hope is that both the newly acquainted and mature data scientists can gain something from this podcast. By looking at diverse journeys to become a data scientist, we can uncover what is meant to have a foothold in the functional and technical world of data expertise. In essence, we will be discovering how to translate nerd. Hi, Anton. Hey, Nick. So I'm sitting here with Anton, and please correct me because I'm going to butcher this, but Prokopiev? That's right. Anton Prokopiev, like the composer. Very nice. I, I don't think I, I know who even the composer is. Uh, that would be um, 1800s. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to go look at that Wikipedia afterwards. Mm-hmm. So Anton is from the World Bank and is a data science consultant over there, and he has um, offered to share his wealth of knowledge and really interesting background how he got into the world of data scientists or data science. Um, Originally, both Anton and I had met through our graduate school at UC San Diego, Mm -hmm. which is a combination of um, public policy and data science toolkits. And amongst the other engineering marvels that is UC San Diego, I think um, they are doing some really, really cool stuff with their undergraduate majors for data science right now and really developing that out as um, a core competency within the University of California system. But putting that aside, um, I will leave it to you to uh, discuss where you work and the nature of what you do. Well, uh, first of all, Nick, uh, thanks so much for inviting. It's really a delight being here today. And uh, I know uh, it's been your birthday this month, so happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, You know, uh, I'm just going to talk really quickly about uh, what I do for work, and we just can take it from here. I think one thing that not everybody realizes right now uh, is uh, working in in the economic development. The World Bank has been a data-driven organization for decades, uh, basically since its inception. So it's really a leader in the production of data and cross-country indicators, um, which are ultimately used to unlock growth and policy improvements and research in the developing countries. So I find myself in this space now, and um, I want to mention just really briefly that to understand the World Bank, one has to know that it has committed itself to its twin goals. Number one is eliminating extreme poverty by 2030. 
And number two is boosting shared prosperity, which is uh, measured as an income uh, of the bottom 40% in any given country. When, when were those goals established? Uh, in the 2000s. Uh, it's, uh, it's stemming out of the Millennium uh, Goals Agenda. From that, the UN, right? From the UN, yes. And uh, we are committed to it, and it, it, it's, we are on the track to uh, resolve it, yeah. So to me, it sounds like you're living the dream. I remember going to grad school and being gung-ho for international relations and public policy and realizing that my economics background needed a lot of work, which Mm -hmm. a lot of students going into UC San Diego's um, international relations school do. Um, However, a lot of us learned kind of the basic um, full stack of data analytics and statistical modeling and so forth. And it seems to me like you're living the dream, you know, public policy and data science at the same time. You know, you're right. Uh, It's living the dream and also being on the data for good side of the things, because uh, actually um, I find a lot of my friends, uh, former co-workers working in the tech uh, and in the private sector, and some of them are not, not seeing the the ultimate goal of doing the data analytics uh, and the all the analysis and the work, even if it's not analytical, um, being uh, beneficial to a lot of people. Like sometimes uh, they they don't they kind of lose the focus and being in, in a data for good space. Uh, yeah, in this regard, is, I think is more rewarding for a lot of people and. Uh, Really, the, this motivation is what drives people to work in international development in general. And especially in Washington, D.C., there's such a large conglomerate of people who work in development. Um, do you feel that data science has helped separate you from people who might just be experts in one domain field within international development? Um, I think I think it, it definitely distinguishes, but I wouldn't really go as far as say a separate because um, ultimately everybody's domain uh, knowledge is essential to the work because it is while it is increasingly all about the data it is not only about the data and uh, without the domain experts uh, in on particular regions on particular issues or problems like water uh, poverty or crisis um, the, the data scientists without uh, the domain will not be able to be very helpful. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, so let's transition a little talk about your educational background. Um, mm-hmm. I think you have a very international um, story of how you got into data scientists. Can you talk about um, kind of different education places you've gone, <laughs> education places, different <laughs> universities you've gone to, uh, what you studied, and what essentially gave you the transition to where you are today? It's been quite the journey, really. And uh, I think one thing that's um, really exciting for me right now is uh, being a successful career switcher, because um, that actually doesn't happen very often, but I, I have managed to do so. And uh, my journey really started uh, with the uh, political science Public policy, uh, diplomacy, and foreign serv- and foreign service school in Moscow, Russia, and uh, it's sort of a 
a one-stop shop for all things related to international affairs, right? And I, I was in that space and I thought of myself as uh, a future diplomat. However, um, there, there's been some changes in, in the uh, foreign ministry uh, that, that reflected the need for a master's degree as opposed to just a bachelor's. And um, my idea of uh, my career path slightly changed. So, so I transitioned to uh, public relations and communications field. Uh, number one, why did I do this is, number one reason is actually public relations is diplomacy. It's just the actors that you're dealing with are a little bit different. It's so not governments. The, the commercial side of diplomacy. It, it's more, uh, it's definitely more on the commercial side of diplomacy. Uh, public relations means being outward facing, means being um, a representative of an entity and the same for diplomats, right? So I transitioned in, into, into PR and I got uh, a, just tremendous opportunity to start out as an intern at the press office of uh, Apple Computer in Moscow. I might have heard of them. Yeah, it, it's a famous company. <laughs> <laughs> so once you're in PR at Apple, what do you do from there? Well, you know, you really start building on your reputation uh, because it started out as an internship and it was supposed to be just that. However, um, being an uh, effective and efficient intern that I were, I was able to keep the job and I work uh, at Apple through, uh, through the rest of my undergrad part-time. Can you talk a little, because I know a lot of our listeners are um, either just out of undergrad or current students in grad school and the internship is an absolute key part of getting to any position within data science can you talk a little about your thoughts on that internship and why it was successful for you i think um, the success really depends um, on several components number one of course is your performance Number two is actually your team because it, it really varies uh, um, from team to team, from company to company. Uh, what are their goals? So the goal of uh, internship at Apple was actually to get things done and be more efficient, not to have uh, you know uh, an internship program that's just for the sake of having an internship program because you have to. So I think that's why it actually transitioned into uh, a long-term relationship um, with uh, between me and Apple. And um, the third component to it is then, of course, a bit of luck. So finding yourself um, in the right spot is never easy. But uh, when you're pursuing something you're really interested in, you want to excel at, and I, re- I was really interested in tech, and public relations and it seemingly uh, I had everything I had prepared everything that was needed for it uh, and then it just clicked and you had told me um, before we met about specific mentors that you had while you were at Apple right can you talk about how mentorship has helped bring you to the point in your career that you're at right now sure uh, my manager um, was uh, sure 
my manager at Apple's press office was uh, quite the character. And um, he taught me something that's usually not taught in schools. And you can only learn this by accident, which is being creative on demand. Because um, as you would imagine... Being, being creative on demand. That's right. That's right. Well, it might be common in the uh, movie or writing industries, but um, what I mean by being creative on demand in terms of public relations, you have to be able to uh, come up with um, interesting insights about your products for, for clients, which in this case are essentially the media and the press. And of course, you like, be, like working at Apple, we had the benefit of working uh, for, for the most interesting company in the world. Uh, but still, uh, we, we had to come up with different angles for different uh, resources and news outlets. So being creative on demand was one of the most important skills. And it breaks down into two components, which is uh, number one is discipline. That I've learned about discipline from my manager because he was a strict manager, but also fair. And whenever we needed um, a creative material being written, a technical description, or an analytical summary of what's being uh, done in the press, I, I would be able to do it in a short amount of time. And then the creativity comes... Uh, uh, with imagination and uh, so, sort of a thing that everybody's talking about, trying to imagine yourself in the shoes of the other person. But do like if you ask yourself, like, do I really do it all the time? Uh, maybe not always, but uh, that internship and eventually the job really taught me a lot about it. That sounds a lot kind of like... Um more design thinking and what you hear a lot in Silicon Valley of agile strategy where putting yourself in a user perspective, um, especially when it comes to user design of any product that you're doing, is what is the user story behind this? Um, you know, I, I can build something that somebody can use, but unless I look through it through the eyes of that person using it, I really haven't even scratched the surface. Is that kind of what you're getting at in that terms? I, I agree uh, it, with the, the design thinking being like a, a popular concept these days and uh, touching base on what, what is the people's understanding uh, of the concept versus yours is important. But then um, in, a, another component of PR is really uh, delivering the message and that plays like that skill really plays well in the reporting and of data science and research results uh, that I use every day these days. Right, and I feel that's a component that's missed a lot. You know, you have all these MOOCs, you have all these online courses in regards to learning the specific skill set, be it the theory behind it or the, the toolkit behind it, but you very rarely hear about the ability to disseminate that knowledge. Um, that's a good point. So you're at Apple. What do you do from there? You know, my work was analytical in many senses, uh, in many regards, but it was a very quali qualitative. And my idea of uh, a career was twofold. It was international and 
I um, at, at some point I started feeling like I want my career to be uh, concerned with quantitative stuff. So uh, I think it really comes um, uh, comes out of uh, my educational background prior to bachelor's uh, degree because um, our middle and high school system is uh, really focused on math. And you're talking, to clarify, you're talking about in Russia. That's right, yeah. I'm originally from there. So it, it was a really solid uh, math training that we received uh, throughout the many years in middle and high school, which uh, is not uh, very different from the math that's being used you know, in data science these days. So I, I kind of lacked um, that. I, I felt like th- that component was missing because I was already trained to do that. And I was on the lookout for a um, graduate school that would allow me to bridge my uh, diplomacy and public relations experiences with quantitative stuff. And that's how I find myself in UC San Diego. Um that's quite the transition from Moscow to San Diego, California. It's a little bit warmer out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard, and so I've experienced myself too. Um, so when you were in graduate school, what were some courses that you took that you felt were completely indispensable that absolutely made an impact on where you are today? You know, uh, at the School of Global Policy and Strategy, um, the quantitative methods courses are required for all students. Of course, it's a big series of courses. I think it goes all the way to QM5 now. However, so QM being quantitative methods. Quantitative methods, yeah. Essentially, it's a, um, statistics and econometrics courses, just under a different name. And the, the first two series of these courses are required for everybody in that school and I think it's just a tremendous way of spreading um, the statistical mindset and the data thinking. Well, and I remember from I taking the entire uh, quantitative methods one all the way through four track that the hardest part for me was quantitative methods one was learning the foundations that both you and I use today. Um, basic concepts of probability basic concepts of um, matrix manipulation. And you know, a lot of people, and I would say a lot of MOOCs teach you these really cool techniques, but very, very seldom will they actually talk about what's happening under the hood. And I think having that, that, that background, because I would have never touched really anything of quantitative nature other than what's required to get through school had I not had my butt kicked in that quantitative methods track. Um, but I think they do a good job in preparing students because a lot of schools are doing this now where they have some type of preparatory track beforehand, um, be it a, a month-long boot camp. And I know for um, UC San Diego's <clears throat> School of Global Policy S- Studies, uh, which was under the name of IRPS <laughs> before then, yeah. when I was there, so International Relations and Pacific Studies, which does no justice to the data science track that they have now. Um, we had a month and a half that we had to go before school even started to do these boot camps within, okay, here's basic linear algebra. Here are the um, economics and managerial economics types of uh, calculus that you're going to need to know. And a lot of these people had come from 
former government service, former Peace Corps, and you know, former political scientists like uh, both you and I studied as undergrad. So I'm seeing that a lot more where you're having these prep courses before you start your master's programs. So let's go more into what you're doing now. You're, you're at the World Bank, you're doing data science consulting. Um, what does your average day look like as a data science consultant? You know, uh, right now there's a term or a notion of uh, a full-stack data scientist. And I, I think it's... Can, sorry, can you describe what you mean for anyone who's listening who done, uh, that has never heard the word full-stack? I think like a deck of cards. What, what are you referring right. to as full-stack? Well, essentially, you're right. Uh, it, it's, it's a full uh, deck of uh, tools and full deck of knowledge about the entire process. And the term really comes from software development and web development where there are full stack developers. And in, in, the, um, in terms of maturity, data science has matured already to the point when there are different specializations in the field. However, um, still people who can take the project from the ground up and take it all the way through the process from uh, building a hypothesis, then going out and collecting the data and then cleaning the data and then analyzing the data, then building a model and then building a model that's production scale model that so can be scaled across all entire, the entirety of organization. So not very different from the scientific method that we learned about as high school students. I would imagine so. It's just, it, I think uh, PhDs, um, are, are really uh, familiar with this uh, concept because they have to do all the work by themselves. And this is essentially uh, what a full stack data science is. And, you know, some people, they don't agree on, on the terms, but uh, it, it, it's a, a, the data science language is evolving right now, like at this precise moment. So eventually we will have more, much more clearer definitions and, and I think we already have established uh, pretty good what is data science and what is AI. And the terms will just be clarified as we, as we move forward. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because kind of the original idea of this series of interviews was to talk to people who are in positions that we say are quote unquote data scientists. In your book, what are the core competencies of a data scientist? To me, there is really uh, one core competency uh, about a data scientist and uh, their work, and it is being able to serve as a forensic investigator or a detective, if you will, because uh, a lot of the times uh, people say, uh, well, we believe in God, um, everybody else bring us data. However, <laughs> uh, it's a famous quote by an engineer. However, you know, the understanding of the real world doesn't always come from data because uh, if the data contradicts some of the uh, uh, your preconceived notions about the world, it may be also that the data is corrupt. So it's kind of like, being able to make sound decisions is a key component and uh, another uh, secondary part that's uh, last but not the least is just being able to sit through um, hours of work 
just cleaning the data because essentially uh, all, a lot of the libraries are very mature right now and you just have to be able to prepare your columns and your rows in a way that so that you can feed them easily into an algorithm and sometimes it's just not as straightforward as you would imagine. Man, a lot of the times those algorithms are say the parameters are predefined. Um, so I think that I, I find it interesting that so much emphasis is put, especially within the machine learning world, so much emphasis is put on being able to run and evaluate algorithms, but there's so little emphasis put onto how do you clean the data, how do you manipulate the data, and how do you get it in a format where you can actually put it into that algorithm. I think that's precisely the reason why computer scientists find them, find themselves really comfortable in the data science world because they have had a formal training in data structures and algorithms um, with data structures being the way the data is organized which sounds trivial however there there are a lot of tricky uh, computer science ways to store the data which uh, you might not necessarily think of it's not uh, always just uh, you know uh, rows and columns and then uh, the algorithms is actually sometimes the process how you can transform one type of data into another type and it takes uh, a lot of skills that um, require abstraction and it, sometimes it's just something you have to learn th through by doing. That's a really interesting way of putting it. Um, I know a lot of times, especially when you're in any area of consulting, um, being able to explain concepts such as uh, algorithms that might not be necessarily easy to understand for someone who has a non-quantitative background. Um, I automatically think of things like within machine learning, basic types of classification, basic types of supervised learning, unsupervised learning. Um, being able to explain that to somebody with a non-quantitative background, I think is becoming more and more important. Um, I find that those people who have a teaching background, be it teaching English after college overseas, or be it um, having worked in Peace Corps, or t being a teaching assistant during graduate school, the fact that those people had to explain it to people in not one, not two, not three, but 10 different ways for different learning styles have an incredible ability to break through the noise and tell a client um, a way of understanding kind of the, pro the data science process that those without the teaching um, experience aren't really able to do. Now you spent some time at University of San Diego, I'm sorry, UC San Diego, I admit my alma mater is going to kill me on that one, at UC San Diego as a teaching assistant. Can you talk a little bit about how trying to translate complex ideas to those at a policy school where almost no one came from a quantitative background. Has that helped you in your job today? Absolutely. And I think uh, you really hit the nail on the head here in terms of emphasizing the importance of communicating the ideas in different ways. I think when you find yourself in a um, business um, setting, it's important to really uh, read people. Uh, successful businessmen do it and you don't have to have your own business uh, to be able to do it as well because uh, one important thing to understand is that 
if you can read a person and understand their learning style, even if they haven't gone to school for 20 years, uh, you can automatically calibrate uh, the way you present the, your research to them or the way you ask even the questions about their problems, their, their business goals. Uh, you, you'll be really successful in, in your position because it is, it is not always about jumping into complex data analysis from, from, from the ground up. It is more about building up on questions to be asked, building up on understanding of where does the data come from because some clients uh, will not even uh, know about your field at all. They, they just know that uh, there's a, there are a lot of capabilities there, but uh, f just figuring out things like where does where where does the data come from? Do they have the data? Can you get the data for them? Can somebody else help us out on this end? And I think understanding of that uh, and understanding that ev like a single person cannot be expert on every single thing and accommodating for that is really important. And I know we've talked offline about that discussion where as in the data science industry, the feeling there, there's an overwhelming feeling that I'm falling behind I'm because I don't know every single package, every single library out there. Can you talk a little bit about how you stay on top of things? Well, essentially, if you're going to be in data science, um, you have to accept that uh, every week you're going to have... Um, a learning exercise. Sorry, that's both my phone and my computer reminding me that I have a single text message, which of course would be very, very important. Um, granted that I I don't even know who that person was. It was the unknown number. So I'm glad that warning went off. So sorry, sorry to interrupt <laughs> your train of thought. That was really, really no, loud. No, no problem. So essentially, if you're in the field of the data science, uh, you have to accept that uh, every week you are going to have a learning exercise because libraries update on a regular basis, new algorithms come, up, come out every year, and you just have to keep up with the learning curve. It just never stops, and you have to be cool with that because otherwise uh, you're just going to find... Uh, as you've mentioned before in our private conversation, a, a comfort zone and you, you're just maybe going to stay there. And of course, maybe it will work out uh, in certain cases. However, you're going to be running an increasing risk of um, becoming um, out of market by the time you reach your, say, 40s, which oftentimes happens to our colleagues in the software development world where, um, well, I, I, uh, we can be honest here, where there's a, a lot of age and other types of, of course, discrimination, but uh, age discrimination is really big because uh, it is believed that uh, young, uh, recent graduates will learn new libraries, new approaches, new languages faster than uh, experienced uh, with a programmer with 20 years of experience because He's been around for way too long, and maybe his learning abilities have uh, decreased. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about what you consider essential in the data science toolkit? Uh, in the data science toolkit, um, 
I already talked a little bit about uh, just being able to see the hours, the hours uh, through the data cleaning part. And I can expand a little bit on this because really um, the, uh, if you're a, beginning, a beginner data scientist, you, you can kind of have an idea about data just being, uh, maybe it's, it, it has like different column types, maybe it has some slight differences between the way you store data in R data frames versus uh, Python data structures, but it's really kind of a big deal because um, if you're not able to convert um, easily um, from these data structures, you, you won't be able to get to the, uh, to the finish line, to the, the, the cherry on top of the cake, which is the analysis. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, what, what future technologies, um, what future uh, software programs, uh, what future capabilities are on your radar right now? Um, I'm going to steal a quote from Dr. Kirk Bourne here, who says, who is also quoting William Shakespeare, uh, who preconceivably said, oh, the world is a graph. Of course, he actually said, uh, oh, the world is a stage. But if you really think about it, <laughs> we're, we're all interconnected here. And even if we did not have a direct transaction between you and me or somebody else, there is still some sort of connection in sort of a metaphysical way of things, you know, uh, we're with us being in the same or similar location. And this includes all sorts of things like social graphs. This is how like social media works. Product graphs, interest graphs. It, it is all about the network science that is going to be important uh, for us uh, in the data science world in the years to come. So say, for example, there is a new technology or a new algorithm that you know absolutely nothing about. What is the first resource that you go to when learning something new? Well, um, it's easy because literally it is part of the job. And I think I'm a bit unorthodox here because my number one go-to resource is actually YouTube. And I'm, I'm just going to explain myself here. <laughs> Be, well, of course, YouTube is great for all things entertainment, but also all things education. And that's, I think, something not a lot of people realize. And I just found that there are so many niche experts on YouTube who have YouTube as their only means of expression for, for their educational content. So they want to, let's say... Um, they are experts in topic modeling and um, latent Dirichlet allocation, which is a very so you're talking N NLP type area. NLP type area, and let's say this person has figured out a way uh, to communicate their idea to a broader audience in a much more efficient and uh, simple words uh, than it's it's written in textbook. So they just go out there and they create a video, maybe a screencast of their notebook in Python or something like that. Maybe even better, they use some animation, but they are only experts in that. So I've noticed, I've seen lots of dozens of channels that maybe have three videos and some of them are 
five years old but they are still really great videos and they take you through the material step by step in a short amount of time which uh, we are all short on time is really important these days and the second one i would say is going to github and looking for repositories um, on certain technologies so being able to fork somebody else's expertise over to you absolutely that that's that's the idea of open source code and uh, coincidentally a lot of people attend boot camps data science schools uh, that maybe they even have paid for but then still they make the source code of those lessons available on their github i don't know uh, if that's going to put them in trouble or not, but that is really an overlooked resource that I highly recommend. That's that's a really a really good recommendation. Um, so, a lot of the times in the data science community, we talk about what does your T look like, and the T idea comes from uh, a book by O'Reilly Press called Analyzing the Analyzers. And I know we were talking about this briefly before the show. Um, and that is by uh, Harlan Harris, Sean Patrick, and Murphy and Mark Weisman. And they do a really good job describing um, how the structure of your skill set looks on a piece of paper. And so if you imagine the horizontal are things that you're good at, but you're not necessarily known throughout your organization. And the vertical is something that you would consider a core competency and something that um, is essentially your bread and butter. Can you explain what your tea looks like? Uh, sure. Um, the, uh, I think I would um, think about the T uh, structure, if in my particular case, um, exactly the way I talked about the full stack, being a full stack data scientist. So the cap of the T in my case will be really, really broad because I have to be able to do uh, all things data science essentially from hypothesis building and data collection and cleaning um, through uh, data production, data product output. And then the, the standing part of my T will be the natural language processing. Um, I actually had a tremendous resource at UC San Diego that got me interested in the field. It, it was Molly Roberts, um, Professor Roberts. Of the political science department, right? At the political science department. Um, who, who is uh, a leading uh, acad academic person in the field right now. Uh, she, she's done a lot of theoretical work. She's done a lot of practical work. Uh, she's an uh, author and co-author. I, re I remember hearing, libraries. hearing her name a lot um, in that field when I was at, in San Diego. Yeah, and she's, she's oftentimes in D.C., which is not surprising, Anyways, she had a class called Text as Data, which is intended to promote um, quantitative text analytics approach for social scientists, uh, which uh, is essentially of political science and uh, surrounding departments in our school as well. And that really was one of the best classes I have taken uh, in grad school not to throw shade on any other classes, but because it has become my uh, primary interest, the text analytics and natural language processing. And getting back to the education sphere, if, this is a question I've asked before, but if you were to go back and recreate your education, um, say you're 18 years old, Anton, going to um, uh, undergraduate school in Russia, 
to prepare for a data science career today, what would that undergraduate major be composed of? Well, I think I have built almost uh, an ideal version of education for myself, having uh, had a political science degree first, which gave me um, the broader sort of uh, outlook on the world, which is actually essential for my work right now because of domain knowledge and understanding of the uh, social dynamics, political dynamics. Uh, but if we were going back to, uh, or maybe if we're going to back into the future and me establishing a potential data science degree, it will be actually called uh, data science and arts. So you can think about it sort of a liberal arts data science school, which uh, gives you both the technical um, side of the things plus the broader outlook. That's interesting you say that because there's a lot of books on the market right now that um, show how the intersection of liberal arts education and computer science background are absolutely the education of the future. Um, there's one that comes to mind called The Fuzzy and the Techie, where the fuzzy is essentially mm -hmm. uh, your liberal arts type thinker and the techie being your Silicon Valley technologist. Um, I can't think... I, it's literally on a bookshelf in front of me, but I'm, I don't want to walk away to, to look at it. Um, I'll put the, the name of it in the show notes. But um, that's really interesting to hear that uh, your understanding of undergraduate major still keeps the core competencies of the liberal arts education. Absolutely. And I really, I really think it circles back to our conversation about uh, being... Um, wanted and being necessary on the job market because by the time you're going to reach 40 maybe you're going to become slower in terms of uh, learning new technology but those business skills the broad the broader mind the the people skills that you will have acquired through that program and throughout your work will help you become um a technical manager to the projects and I think that's a path a lot of people are willing to take uh, even uh, even though there's people who never want to do uh, kind of people management work but I, I feel like unless they're very very good at their technical work they might f face some troubles with employment once uh, they reach a certain milestone so a final question and that I had asked you beforehand was to explain something on this show that is, I would say, quantitatively challenging to an audience that the last math course and the last quant course they took was their junior or senior year of high school. The floor is yours. Sure. Well... Uh, we all love politics here, right? So I think I'm just going to talk about um, a certain concept using uh, politics as an example. Um, you know, when, when you're using machine learning algorithms, uh, uh, at a certain point, maybe you're just um, stuck at uh, building one model, but soon enough, you're going to find yourself building uh, tens of models, dozens of, dozens of models, and you, you want to find a way to start comparing them between each other. And one of the ways uh, to compare them is, is called an F1 score. And I had had have had uh, some trouble 
understanding and uh, visualizing it uh, for myself. So I thought it would be really beneficial to, to, if I share it with people. And it all goes back to the uh, sort of a simple discussion between well, what's the difference between accuracy and precision. And I found uh, um, that a lot of people without the um, quantitative and specifically machine learning uh, training have are, are feeling that uh, like these concepts are a little bit fuzzy and maybe uh, more or less interchangeable. So how do, how do you determine whether you're precise and, and can you be precise but not accurate? So let's just imagine you're trying to classify politicians into two groups. Uh, one is uh, supposedly honest politicians and, and those who are not so honest. So you're saying all politicians are honest, right? Well, let, let's just make that assumption here. <laughs> so... Uh, and you, you'll get a list of 100 people, half of them are honest and the other half is not. And you have to be careful uh, with uh, picking the most honest politicians. So you are tasked with picking only honest politicians. So if you're having a high precision, it means that when you say that somebody is honest, you're basically 100% sure you're right about it. And uh, that is uh, about like how many politicians in your list are actually honest. And all of those ones who, who you've added to the list should be honest in real life. So that is high precision. So and then there is a notion of uh, having a high recall, which means you can identify most the most the majority of the politicians out there who are honest. And this is about how, how many honest politicians you've added to the list out of those ones that, are, um, that exist. And then we have to be careful here to note that these are not the same. You can add a single person to the list, but then um, you would have a very high precision because uh, is, is that person on the list of one honest, yes. So you have perfect precision. However, since it's the only person that you've listed, uh, you're gonna have very low recall. So because there are actually uh, 49 other honest politicians who did not make it on the list. So how, how good of uh, prediction was that? Not so sure. So ideally you want to list honest politicians that actually exists while being careful not to include uh, accidentally those who are not honest. Even if you could do that, you can have both high precision and high recall. So when measuring how well you're doing, sometimes it's not, it's not very uh, convenient to keep track of multiple uh, metrics. So that, that's, that's what the F1 metric is for because it, it's a single number that describes your performance uh, by by uh, taking the mean of, of the relationship between um, precision and recall. So it's really, an, uh, you're talking about an aggregate score of the two. Well, we can put it this way. Okay. So if somebody were to want to reach out to you 
and have a conversation like we did. What's the best way of reaching you? The best way for reaching me would be connect with me on LinkedIn. And uh, I believe we can provide the link afterwards. I'm also active on Twitter, but not for communication. So I would just suggest sticking to LinkedIn. That's usually a good way to go. Well, Anton, thank you for being on here. Um, Our conversations, I know, will continue. And um, hopefully we'll hear back about your success soon. Thank you so much for having me, Nick.